Hey guys, in general, I'm not a big fan of killing time with long intros, but before we get into this episode, I think it's important to set the tone for what you'll hear. For one, the person I'm bringing to you is someone very special, and to say that I'm excited to present this person to you is an understatement. The person I'm talking about is, as you probably saw it in the title, Brian Haycock, the creator of the hypertrophy-specific training methodology. You may or may not have heard of him before. If you did, then you'll obviously know why this is a big deal. If you haven't, you know, what you'll hear, some parts of it may be a bit confusing. There might be some stuff of which you won't necessarily know what to make of. But if anything, this episode is going to make you think. For me, talking to Brian really helped me to sort of think more about why some of the concepts that we take of at face value in muscle building are just sort of not as simple as some people make it out to be. For example, volume is the key driver of hypertrophy, and the more you do, the better. In fact, according to some recent research, even up to some absurdly high number, the more you do, the better. You know, sounds great in concept, but I think all of us know from experience that it's just not as simple as that. Because if all it took to build muscle is to just keep doing more and more sets, then the secret to muscle building would have been cracked a long time ago. And why certainly there are some people who just go in there and do set after set after set, and they look amazing... I know way more people than I would want to know who do just that, and year after year, they have very little to show for it. And I'm just skeptical that for someone like that, the answer is to just do even more. Brian actually compared that approach with binge drinking. So this episode both confirmed some of my biases, but also made me much more excited to explore some of the nuances of this endeavor of finding an intelligent and measured approach to muscle hypertrophy. So that's for the general intro. And of course, as always, join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group for being a member of our community. And also visit sustainableselfdevelopment.com to get up to date about everything we are up to. So let's get into this episode with Brian. All right, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Today, I'm super excited to talk with one of the biggest thinkers in the topic of hypertrophy and building muscle. And that is Brian Haycock, who is the creator and the founder of the concept hypertrophy specific training. And uh, a lot of people know about this approach, but I'm assuming that a lot of my audience have not heard about it yet. So I'm really excited to introduce all of you to this these concepts and, and to have the man himself tell you about it uh, on this in this episode. So I'm really excited to welcome Brian. So maybe just let's start with, could you just tell a little bit about yourself and uh, how did you get into this whole um, endeavor, which ended up with you founding the whole concept of hypertrophy-specific training? I had, you know, actually, I had begun writing for, you know, internet magazines, one that was popular and still is, I guess, among some circles, is Mesomorphosis. Um, and I had a little spin-off, you know, email newsletter from that and Think Muscle. And so I had been writing in those uh, outlets about strength training, specifically from Schiff and Verkashansky's super training text. And, you know, it goes super in-depth, you know, about uh, load progression and frequency and periodization and all the, the traditional strength training uh, methodology. And when I got done with it, um, I began to realize that really all of the research was very strength specific, you know, understandably, and that there were aspects that I was learning uh, from other literature and animal literature about, you know, how muscles grow and uh, uh, in response to what kinds of stimulus um, that did not correspond as well with the strength training research. And, you know, kind of at the same time, and this was in the, in the early 90s um, and mid 90s, there was an increase in interest in uh, wasting conditions, particularly HIV and AIDS was, was causing a big problem with muscle wasting. And so this inspired and stimulated a lot of research into the mechanisms of muscle growth. And so as I was being exposed to that and the traditional strength training research, I realized that there were a few discrepancies, at least in the approach uh, between making a muscle grow and making a muscle larger. Um, so that's when uh, I wrote a, a really relatively small article on uh, Think Muscle, and I called it strength or hypertrophy-specific training to distinguish it at that time from the only training that was available, which was all strength training. Um, 
and it grew in popularity and and it is what it is today and that's that was about 18 19 years ago um and when i presented it it wasn't it wasn't a a method per se like sets and reps i mean there was a kind of a one size fits all place to start as far as mapping out your training planning your training but really because of the the nature of hypertrophy it's it's an adaptive process and as an adaptive process it's never really stable or stagnant so if you have a kind of a cookie cutter routine that says do this many sets and this many reps um, it will work pretty good most of the time and then at other times it may work less well as various adaptive processes make you less sensitive to it and so that's really where the difference between hst and traditional strength training i'll call it uh, lies um, and to be more specific um, this notion of intensity and in bodybuilding intensity meant effort you know 100 percent intensity meant 100 percent effort but in hypertrophy research intensity was was more associated with the absolute load so you're looking at the tissue apart from the lifter so it, it didn't matter and particularly in animals cases you, you, there really wasn't a measurement well how hard is this animal trying intensity was simply a measure of how much strain are we putting on the tissue and uh for example, uh, there was an early study that I still really like where they took a mouse or a rat and they electrically stimulated both the anterior tibialis muscle and the gastrocnemius muscle simultaneously. Now, because the gastrocnemius is so much larger, it overwhelms the strength of the anterior tibialis muscle. And so when the current was put onto the muscles, the, the foot would flex because of the stronger you know, amount of force that the gastrocnemius is able to produce. So every time they turned on the electricity, the, the gastrocnemius would undergo a, a powerful concentric contraction and the anterior tibialis would undergo a powerful eccentric contraction because it was being stretched. Well, lo and behold, the gastroc muscle didn't even really grow, but the anterior tibialis almost doubled in size. So it, it was at those moments that I'm realizing, okay, um, not only is it not just how hard you're trying, but the type of contraction is really going to make a difference. And it has to do with what's happening at, at the level of the muscle, not in the mind of the lifter. And, you know, when I refer to the mind, it's like, you know, how hard are you really trying? Um, and it, so it was little things like that. And that's just one example of some of the differences that were that existed amongst the strength training literature and the muscle hypertrophy literature. Now, since that time, you know, we have some great guys out there. Um, Brad Schoenfeld's doing some great work. And um, you, I know you had uh, Jeremy Lenecki on there with who I cited at least a dozen times in my dissertation for his work with uh, blood flow restriction. Um, and his, his, the lab he came from too with Abe. Um, and so since then there's been uh, an influx of young PhDs who have an actual interest in bodybuilding as opposed to just muscle wasting. And so we're getting a lot of the questions we have about training answered that way. Still, there are differences in the mindset, uh, both in the researchers and the readers, that will dictate how they interpret the research, as well as the decisions that they will use to plan and alter their training. With hypertrophy-specific training, the emphasis is on the tissue itself. We're not concerned, per se, with how hard you're trying or, you know, whether you feel strong that day or whether you feel sore that day. We're really not concerned with, with your feelings. <laughs> We're just concerned with what did you do to the muscle last time mm -hmm. um, and what are we going to do to it this time and look at it as a series of events instead of, you know, every workout being a, a gut check to see if you've really got what it takes to be a bodybuilder, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's where the thinking diverged. Yeah. So HST became really a, a list of principles, rules of thumb, so to speak, by which you make decisions about your training instead of, you know, written in stone sets and reps and, and all of that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. So let, let's, let's, let's start with what makes a muscle grow. Um, 
Well, three things make a muscle grow. Um, and one, we'll get it out of the way, is just hormonal signaling. So you have hormones and various other hormone-like uh, messengers. Um, for example, folostatin and myostatin. Myostatin makes a muscle not grow. Folostatin makes a muscle grow. Uh, whether you lift a weight or not, it, re it really doesn't make any difference. Um, you can be bedridden, and if you get rid of myostatin, your muscles will grow. Um, the other is uh, um, mechanical resistance or resistance training, and that stimulus can be divided into two, two different stimuli, and that's the mechanical stimuli, meaning just the physical stretch or strain that a tissue experiences when you're trying to lift something. And then the other is metabolic stress. And that's the stress that's called or that's created by having to create the energy necessary to maintain uh, contractile activity under this strain or load. So both the mechanical and metabolic stress are your primary triggers or stimuli for muscle hypertrophy as it relates to resistance exercise. Um, so we don't need to talk about hormones. We all know how those work and what they do. Um, but even if somebody is, you know, messing with their hormones, their training still needs to be as effective as possible if, if they're going to have success. So, so it still applies. Um, so a, a number of principles that are involved in HST, one of, one of probably the most um, enlightening is the effectiveness of any load to produce muscle growth is dependent upon the condition of the tissue at the time the load is applied, which means just because you lifted 100 pounds, you know, yesterday and then it was effective workout, six weeks from now, that 100 pounds will no longer be as effective to make your muscle grow. And everybody goes, oh, yes, well, that's common sense, right? We've all experienced something similar to that. But people forget about that when it comes to their day-to-day -day training. Um, they assume, well, there's, let's say that the, the timeline for this effect, for these diminishing returns of a given load, the timeline is somewhat nebulous. You know, well, well how long does it take for it not to be effective anymore? Um, well, that's a good question. And you can't say we don't really know. It's just, it's more like, you know, where is an electron at any given time? It's like, you know where it should be. You just don't know where it is exactly. Um, and in general, timelines for physiological adaptation like to fall within 21 days, right? For whatever reason, three weeks um, is a good general period of time to assume that the adaptive processes necessary for the body to make, which involve the expression of genes and producing new proteins and new tissues, that kind of manifests itself in about three weeks. So, um, after about three weeks, you can assume that the load you're lifting, if you do it identically over that period of time, is going to be less effective than it was three weeks ago. Now, is that significantly less effective? Maybe, maybe not. If you're an experienced lifter, absolutely. Um, if uh, you're not an experienced lifter and you're just starting, you know, you may be well within that uh, range of effective stimuli and you could lift that same weight for a good three months and still make improvements. Um, that's the other thing, you know, this notion that what works for beginners works for experienced lifters is, is almost totally forgotten in most of the early weight training research. You know, you have a bunch of graduate students in, in colleges, they need to do a study. And so they recruit non-lifters from the student body population and do their studies and then come out with all these declarations about how to lift weights and what happens when you do and why muscle grows. Completely ignoring what we call the repeated bout effect, uh, which is, you know, the fact that the tissue becomes less sensitive to the training stimulus over time. Um, and it wasn't until later that we have good data on timelines of protein synthetic rates over time and all these things that we see an experienced lifter after a workout they may only be anabolic for six hours whereas an inexperienced lifter can go 48 hours uh, two days and still be anabolic so um anyway that, that's just kind of some issues with the research that with this notion that what you do today is totally dependent upon the condition of the tissue at the time um, 
requires that you know what you did before and then to plan ahead to accommodate for some of that adaptation. So the basic, you know, HST type routine is based on starting with what I referred to as the minimally effective load, right? So what's the least amount of weight that you can lift and have some beneficial growth? Well, of course, again, according to what I just said, that varies. But if you're starting from scratch, that can be pretty low. You know, you can talk anything in the 15 to 20 rep range is going to be just fine. Um, and if you're out of shape, you'll probably get sore and, you know, you go, wow, you know, that was pretty traumatic and I didn't even lift that much weight. But then that quickly changes over time. And so the loads must be increased. Um, but that, of course, is has its limits. Uh, what, now I can't remember the name of the, the mythology guy, Greek mythology. He had a baby bull when he was a kid and he would lift it every day and he grew yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, when he was an adult, he was able to, because he continued to lift it as they both grew so slowly, as an adult, he could carry a full-grown bull on his back, right? Well, wishful thinking, right? Um, we don't just continuously get stronger at will. So there's a limit to how strong we get. Um, and so that necessitates some sort of cyclical nature in this effort to make a muscle grow, or, I mean, at least that's the approach that that I feel is, is most valuable, or you can simply stay in that highly trained state and make relatively small improvements. You know, if you're very consistent and all your diet is in order. Um, the problem is that very few people have the type of tenacity and consistency to continue to train day after day, month after month, year after year with just tiny, tiny changes in their physique. Um, and granted, there are natural limits. I mean, if you're a natural bodybuilder, you, you can only get so big. Uh, you're not going to look like a pro. Um, and we all just come to terms to, with that. But we want to know, well, you know, how do we get as big as we can get? And HST, rather than making you bigger than you could get with another training system, should allow you to get there a little faster. Because you're, you're being very specific in the things that you're doing only doing those things that make you grow and not doing those things that don't. Um, an example of things that don't make you grow that people like to do that came from strength training is uh, something like forced reps, right? So, you know, a forced rep for those that may not know is let's say you're doing bench press, you've picked a weight that you can do eight times, you do it eight times barely, and then you have your spotter make up the difference uh, in, in your strength. So then I want to do it 12 times, even though I can only lift it myself eight times. So I want my spotter to jump in and lift it with me till I get to 12 times. Well, what we found is the stimulus to make you grow has already occurred. You've already tripped the, the switch, the trigger's already there. And that excess expenditure of energy and, and nervous system strain to push against a weight that doesn't move, it just drains your, your, your battery, so to speak. It, it it delays the recovery of strength without making you grow any faster. So, I mean, that's just an example of, of kind of a, what I would call an outdated strength oriented strategy uh, that really doesn't benefit somebody who's just trying to get bigger. Um, so in HST, it would never be recommended to do, you know, forced reps, you know, that kind of thing. No, no, great. So uh, could you elaborate a little bit further on like what's the problem with a typical kind of bodybuilding routine where someone is lifting, let's say, one or two reps shy of failure all the time and is just trying to gradually increase load and uh, progress that way? Yeah, there's. I think we're all taught at some point when we're new to training that, you know, we're introduced to a weight that we can lift, you know, and this is very typical for going into a gym for the first time and having some sort of trainer just kind of point out some things that you can do. They'll say here, you know, lift this weight 10 times. And when you can do it 12 or 13 times, add more weight. And, and then that's it. That, that is the rule. So every day we go in, we lift that weight as hard as we can 10 times. When we're new, we do get stronger. So after a while, we're lifting it 15 times. So we add some more weight. Uh, but then the rate of strength gain slows down continually until you know, it's been six months or a year and we, or even many years, and we've never lifted more weight because we're keep trying to get to that, you know, 12 reps with the weight that we can lift 10 times. Um, the problem is, is that you're using a marker for strength to try to make a muscle larger when in fact the tissue itself 
may respond to a heavier load that you can't actually lift 10 times. Um, so that necessitates, uh, you know, the, the type of progressive loading that I recommend in HST, which is, no, you're going to expose the tissue to more and more weight, whether you can lift it more times or not. So because we're only concerned in making it grow, we're concerned with the mechanical strain you're putting on the tissue. So the weight goes up fairly continually and in typical HST routine. In fact, if you're, if you're doing it by the numbers, you would add a little bit of weight each and every workout that you train a particular muscle group until at the end of that little mini cycle, you've reached your 10 rep max or five rep max or whatever maxes you've chosen so that you're always continually increasing the mechanical load on the tissue. Now, granted, HST prioritizes mechanical load overall generally because the load is always increasing from beginning to end but you're going to experience differences in metabolic load metabolic stress in a less predictable way uh, for example when you're starting a typical hst routine you're going to be doing less weight because you're using the least amount of weight that still works so that you have some headroom to increase it later um, and your reps are going to be higher so your muscles are going to burn you know and that burning sensation is metabolic stress um, It'll be pretty high in the beginning, but then as you get heavier and heavier, the weight loads increase and the metabolic stress begins to decrease, uh, which is fine. Um, the body adapts to both metabolic stress and mechanical stress. But um, in essence, we're prioritizing mechanical stress uh, throughout this cycle, an HST cycle, whereas met metabolic stress kind of goes up and down as you go. Can you just outline sort of the intensity of effort that we're talking about here? Because the HST routines that I've seen kind of um, do a lot of submaximal work intentionally, and that allows you to increase the weight pretty linearly, but you're always kind of staying pretty far from failure. Yeah. So as far as in, uh, training to failure, um, training to failure is neither good nor bad in HST. Um, it's not something you strive for, but it isn't necessarily something that you're specifically trying to avoid. Um, for example, uh, if you're familiar with HST, there might be workouts where you feel you could do more reps or more weight, both. Um, and that's frustrating for some people because they're used to this mindset that you got to go, you know, all out all the time or you're not really growing as fast as you can. Uh, this doesn't turn out to be the case because the contractile activity with sufficient mechanical strain turns on protein synthesis as well as heavier weight or more effort. It really doesn't seem to be, you know, the threshold for turning on protein synthesis is not as high as people assume. Um, and for those critics who go, well, you're not getting, you know, motor unit activation if you're not, you know, training to failure. And it's like, well, no, we do know from studies, you know, EMG studies that you actually reach maximum motor unit recruitment before you actually hit failure. So, for example, if you're using a, a 15 rep max weight, when you get to 12 reps, you're actually at maximum motor unit recruitment. Now, some, you know, and that can be interpreted as, well, then those are the only effective reps is when I have maximum motor unit recruitment. Not necessarily true. Um, so, one, the first part of that answer is, no, you don't have to train to failure, even if your concern is maximum motor unit recruitment because you will hit max before you hit failure. The other issue is, is that when you put a tissue under mechanical strain, it's not only the active fibers that are experiencing that strain. People forget that these fibers are attached to one another. So if I have a fiber, if I'm a fiber and the guy right next to me is contracting, I'm getting stretched and strained and pulled and twisted as it contracts and pulls my membrane along with it even if my cross bridges are not actively contracting. Um, and we know that passive distortion of the muscle cell membrane stimulates growth. So you're, you're still in the effective rep range, even if you don't have maximum motor unit recruitment. Now you have to be up there. I mean, we know that. Um, but this notion that if a muscle isn't actively contracting, a fiber isn't actively contracting, that it's not being stimulated to grow is not true. Okay. Just by virtue of their the connected through the cytoskeletal framework that goes through the cells and attaches them to one another, they're getting stretched and strained and pulled all over the place because of those fibers that are contracting. 
Now, this isn't true for strength. Strength gains do appear to be more dependent upon actually activating the fiber itself. But again, that's not our primary concern. It's a nice benefit, but not our primary concern. So to address training to failure, do you have to do it or not? HST is neutral. You know, if you can train to failure all the time and still have enough energy and strength to maintain the proper frequency, go for it. You know, you young guys, go for it. Um, uh, but if you can't and you don't, it's okay. You're not really missing out on the growth opportunities for the reasons I just mentioned, that you're already already reaching maximum fiber recruitment before you hit failure. And those passive fibers that are right next to contracting fibers are also receiving the growth stimulus through distortion of their membranes. Perfect. So I would be curious, how would you explain the efficacy of something like MyoReps, which mainly tries to capitalize on exactly on those quote-unquote effective reps which are close to failure? Um, I there isn't really any criticism of them. Um, uh, my reps are, are great in that with the rest-pause kind of technique, you're always lifting a or contracting a muscle, generally with higher metabolic stress, um, as well as near failure. Um, that's okay. I, I mean, I don't really see anything wrong with that. Um, but from my experience, it isn't always necessary. And from a longevity standpoint, um, sometimes you really you have to pace yourself, uh, not just during a single workout, but during a month or a year. There's a certain level of, of effort and input that you can put in day after day and still continue to do it year after year. Um, and if you're really going to reach your potential, you are going to have to train for years and years, uh, honestly, to get there. But I think, you know, something like mile reps and that uh, is, is absolutely fantastic and can be easily incorporated into HST. In yeah. fact, it's, it's, well, it does stimulate a certain kind of strength endurance because you're always contracting under a very stressed uh, condition. But, you know, I, I have no problem calling that hypertrophy specific as well. Right. Awesome. Um, speaking of what makes a muscle grow, what do you think of the current um, kind of notion that is most often uh, kind of touted that volume training volume is the main driver of hypertrophy. Uh, again, people are forgetting that a muscle cell is is a petri dish. It's a little balloon of liquid and phospholipids that have chemicals floating around in them. Uh, this isn't a machine that has hard mechanical parts that you move a switch this way and this happens. You move the switch the other way and something else happens. This is a fluid um, environment in which you can't accurately predict, you know, the exact moment that a stimulus is going to cause a sufficient reaction by the tissue to do what you want it to do. Now, that's a long way of saying is we can't be that precise. Um, volume is certainly important, um, but it's what, what we call a hormetic principle, meaning like the Goldilocks principle, not too little, not too much, but just right. Um, and where that sweet spot or just right spot is, is a moving target because your level of conditioning and adaptation to your training stimulus is changing over time. You're becoming more and more resistant to the training stimulus over time. So whereas lower volume may be sufficient, you know, a few months ago, now I'm six months into kind of a long training cycle or something. It's, it's likely not going to be sufficient to cause the genetic reactions, right? The genes have to be expressed to produce more muscle proteins and all these things. They may not be happening if you're using the same volume. Now, it's a catch-22, however, in that you can't just infinitely increase muscle volume or, or training volume because you get not only burnout, right, just emotional and mental burnout, but your, your nervous system can't take it. You start to get cumulative effects of inflammation in the joints, and you, you just can't apply higher volume to solve your problem. Uh, even though higher volume might cause the reaction in the muscle tissue that you're after, the price is too high for the rest of the tissues and the lifter himself. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And the reason I say this is because when we look at animal research, they go to the absolute extremes with these animals to see how muscles grow. For example, there's an avian model, a bird model, where essentially they tie a weight that's equal to 10% of its body weight to its wing. And then they look at, basically, they're looking at what would be equivalent to our trapezius muscle. 
So, you know, if I use, you know, if I weigh 200 pounds and I tie a 20 pound weight to your hand and then make you go about your day for, you know, weeks at a time, maybe two months, that strain is constant. There is no sets, reps, rest, recovery, all of that crap. It is constant and the muscles grow like crazy. Okay. Um, And so that tells me that even though that's unethical to do to a human being, the physiology of the body is capable of accommodating extremely high amounts of stress. Now we're not asking the bird, Hey, are you getting joint pain? (laughs) You know, does your wing hurt? Does your neck hurt? Is your spine all out of whack now? Um, None of that is of any interest. And the longevity of the, of the, of the situation is of zero concern. Um, So the capacity of muscle tissue to respond by growing is beyond even what we normally can cause cause it to experience right the t- type of trauma from training now that goes against this notion of oh well if you do any more work you know you get diminishing returns it's not going to make you grow any faster that's that's in principle possibly true but if we look at animal research there's reason to be open minded and to question that uh, assumption volume is a sweet spot too little's not good enough too much isn't good and isn't good but your sweet spot is going to change over time. And if you understand the principles, you can plan your training accordingly. Um, and, and what do you think is the timeline for this um, kind of uh, need to increase volume over time? Well, there's something we're not really talking about with HST, and that's what I like to call strategic deconditioning. Um, in any consistent series of workouts and let's call that a cycle right whether that lasts three months or six months or six weeks a consistent consecutive you know string of workouts using progressive overload is going to bring you to the end of how much weight you can lift how often you can lift it and the volume that you're lifting you're going to get to the to a dead end of all of those things now once you get there you have a choice you can stay there keep working your butt off, which is admirable. It's courageous. Um, uh, people admire guys who go in and work so hard day after day or something that works okay to resensitize the tissue, which is applying the, the exact opposite of the stimulus that you're applying with your training. And that's detraining or what I call uh, strategic deconditioning of the tissue. And the reason I say strategic is to differentiate it from rest. Um, obviously when you take a rest, you're deconditioning, but you're resting because you're tired because you're burnt out. When you apply strategic deconditioning, you may feel absolutely fantastic and have a lot of motivation to train, but you are at a point in your training cycle where you know the tissue just isn't really responding that much anymore. And so strategically, you will decondition the tissue for a couple of weeks and then start over again. So that's why it's called strategic, to differentiate it from, from just rest. Okay, so... Can you, this is maybe a good point to mention, like what are the typical parameters of a typical HHST routine? Like, um, I know that you better like talking about principles as opposed to concrete numbers, but just for your listeners to get an idea. You know, in my experience, what I've seen is guys who are kind of new to the whole thing. Maybe they have a couple years training under their belt. It does help to give them a, a template. And I know you guys are coming out with one and a lot of guys are really excited about it. And I'm curious to see it too, um, soon. So there's a little plug <laughs> for that. Um, With HST, again, the principle is progressive load. So we're going to start with light weights and we're going to work our way up to heavy weights. Um, And that's also based on that principle of, you know, the tissue response is based on the condition of the tissue at the time you apply it. So that means you're going to have to change that that load pretty frequently or or have it moving up. Um, Essentially, I've based HST on three sets of two-week blocks. So... For example, you will have a block based on your 15 rep max, two weeks. You'll have two weeks based on your 10 rep max, and then two weeks based on your five rep max. Then after that, if you're still in good shape, you throw in some eccentric work, right? Get even heavier. Um, And you plan your training loads based on the last workout of that block being your actual 15 rep max. And you will take loads below that and work up to your max over the course of two weeks. So let's say if you have 200 pounds is your, is your max, and I have six workouts to get there, right? Because HST generally uh, uh, 
prefers that you train a muscle three times a week. So you simply take increments of, let's say, uh, 10 pounds times six. So you'll start 60 pounds beneath your, your 15 rep max. And each workout, you'll add 10 pounds until on the last workout of that two-week block, you're using your 15 rep max. And then you'll do that exact same thing, but based off your 10 rep max, then finally based off your five rep max. That's the, the basic strategy to make sense of progressive load and just to make it easy enough. You put it on paper. You already know exactly what weights you're going to use that day. You don't really have to think about it or go by feel. You just put on the bar what you're supposed to put on and lift it. Right. So that's, that's how the progressive load works. Now, the question always comes up, well, but what about volume? Let's say I'm doing, you know, three sets of an exercise doing 15 reps. That's 30 reps or no, that's uh, th uh, 45 reps. When I get to my 10 rep block, now I'm only doing 30 reps. Isn't that bad to go from doing 45 reps to 10 reps? Well, not, not necessarily. Uh, your, your muscles aren't counting reps. Your brain does. Uh, all your muscles know is how heavy is the load and how much metabolic stress am I creating? So some zigzagging will uh, occur, for example, in weight loads. So maybe the weight I'm supposed to start with on my 10 rep block is actually less than my 15 rep max. So my last workout, I was using my 15 rep max. The very next workout, I'm actually using less weight for fewer reps. And that really bothers people. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in practice, it works. In practice, it allows the, the progression of load and, and just the, keeps the condition of the lifter healthy and happy and feeling motivated to train. Now, that's not its purpose, but you know there are benefits to not training at your max to failure each and every workout. Um, but the load is heavy enough and the effort is great enough that it should fall within that effective range. Now, if you're feeling like this is really not enough work, hey, slow down the rep, right? Slow down. And it's going to get hard real fast. So you can alter the tempo of the set to manipulate, you know, the degree of difficulty at any time. There's no problem with that. So, you know, you know I wouldn't say go all the way to super slow, you know, method, but um, if things feel too easy, slow it down. You know, do your, you know, uh, two, two, two up, four down, you know, in a four second down, it seems like forever, but it, it's certainly within the range of, of, of reasonable hypertrophy stimulus, even going that slow. So, uh, yeah. and that's, and that's where you're kind of relying on the, the experience of the lifter to make those adjustments as they go to stay within, you know, that sweet spot of, am I lifting in an effective manner? And if you're new to this, well, you need some guidance, you need some help. Uh, you get on the boards, you get, get in the groups and, and you ask some questions, but you'll get a feel for it. And it doesn't take long to get a feel for it, especially when you do one full HST cycle, you do strategic deconditioning. The second time around, you'll realize you've learned a lot about your own body and how it's responding to this type of training and you can make more effective decisions. Um, a lot of people who just start it, their maxes go up considerably. So they have to change their maxes each time they repeat an HST cycle. But in, in reality, HST is designed for people who aren't necessarily getting stronger each and every time. We want the same weight loads to continue to stimulate new growth due to the strategic deconditioning over time. Right. Um, now, uh, and, and, and you, would, you, would feel, you would feel that, uh, or you find that slowing down the reps, for example, is more effect effective than, for example, adding more weight or adding more sets or something like that? Yeah, because, well, you can add another set. I would prefer that somebody add another set before they add more weight. The ability to add weight is a precious commodity, and you don't want to run out of that too soon. Um, you have a certain amount of headroom that you're going to say, well, you know, I'm probably lifting at, you know, 75% of my max. I could use more weight. Well, be patient. This isn't the last time you're ever going to lift. And this isn't, you know, the last time you're ever going to do HSC. The next time around in your next cycle, add 10 pounds to your max and see what happens then. Oh, well, I did it. I still wasn't at my max, but I grew. Well, great. Repeat it again. You know, so this notion is, you know, like you, I mean, the sustainable approach to, to training, uh, everybody's in such a hurry. And in fact, you know, yes, we do want to grow as fast as we can, but, but going as fast as you can isn't necessarily the answer to growing as fast as you can. Um, your body's going to decide how fast it can grow. Not, you know, you can't force it, um, at least not naturally. So slow, slow down the reps or do more sets rather than impatiently adding more weight. Right.
Excellent. Um, now, what like um, what would be your comments on something which is kind of the complete opposite of this, which is a really high volume, like twenty or so set workout with uh, you know really close to failure all the time? Um, like, what what would be your comments about a protocol like that? Yeah. Well, you know, do you remember German volume training? Yeah, yeah, sure. That was kind of based on just doing really high volume. Um, that's a that's like binge drinking, I guess, <laughs> if you want to compare it to something. You know, people might drink alcohol to enjoy themselves, but other people, you, you're just drunk, right? Um, and you're not really accomplishing what you set out to accomplish at the beginning of the night. Um, if you're training super high volume, almost to failure all the time, you're going to burn out. You're going to come to your limits. And those factors other than muscle size are going to be the bottleneck. That's what's going to stop you from training. Those other factors are going to stop your progress and it's just unnecessary stress and strain on you. Um, again, I'm speaking from someone who's literally lifted weights for, for more than 40 years. And so there's a lot of history to look back on and lessons to learn as you look back, you know, hindsight's 2020 to go out, you know, there is a, a good or a right way to approach the investment that I'm putting into each and every workout. Now, a lot of young guys, again, they're really motivated and they got a lot of young energy and they want to get in and just, you know, destroy themselves every time they go into a gym and they, and they derive some satisfaction from that. You know, it's exciting. It's, it's fun to, to push yourself to your limits, but the body is designed to adapt far before you reach your actual limits um, because that wouldn't be a very good survival strategy to only be able to adapt when, when you're literally brought to the brink of death. Um, the idea of the body is to maintain homeostasis and it starts adapting far before you're at your limits. So you're stimulating muscle growth long before you're putting in 110% of every aspect of your workout with, with frequency and you know weight and volume and all that. It's just not necessary to train at the edge all the time. It doesn't mean that the, the tissue won't respond. I'm not saying that at all. Um, but you can't continue it long enough to reach your potential. Right. Um, how do you think uh, training frequency factors into all of this? Like, what do you think is the role of frequency per muscle group um, per week? Yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer in three times. However, I don't think you lose much with two times. And I know the current belief is it should be two times and you don't gain much with three times. So I look at it slightly differently than that. Um, I would prefer total volume for the week be divided into three, three bouts instead of two, because I believe in creating a more consistent environment for the tissue to adapt to. So each time you work out, it's kind of an assault. You know, it's a disruption uh, to the milieu of the tissue, to the environment in the tissue. I would prefer a more consistent, less intense disruption than a more occasional or less frequent, stronger disruption. And that's based on the notion that your actual, the time frame of responding to a workout gets shorter and shorter, the more adapted you get to training. Um, so, so what do you think about higher training frequencies, like four times, five times, something like that? I think with little enough weight, and I never recommend this to people because it may appear irresponsible or it requires some degree of knowledge and experience to do it properly. But if somebody's starting out their 15s, for example, in an HST cycle, and they're going, man, the starting weight for my 15 rep maxes is so light. I just kind of feel ridiculous. It's like, dude, do it every single day. Go into the gym, do that workout, do full body five times this week with this ridiculously light weight. See what happens. Well, lo and behold, it, it does make you grow. I mean, you get sore, you, you're pumped like crazy all the time. And if you're eating enough food and getting enough rest, you respond to it positively. However, again, that, that can't be maintained. But in that particular situation, the light is there, the weight is light enough and the, the overall stress is low enough that you can repeat it often and get a very positive response. And again, we see that tissue can respond to this kind of trauma, so to speak, from blood flow restriction research, that it's not uncommon to have a, a single muscle trained twice a day, every day, at least five days a week. Um, and over the course of, let's say, three weeks, they get a tremendous response. There's like a doubling in the amount of satellite cells and significant amount of, of hypertrophy that remains um, after the training stops. So we know that for short bursts, 
that this very high frequency, high volume training can be effective. But without knowing what you're doing and having a plan for what to do afterwards or how to incorporate it in your training, it, it's not good advice for the average person. Um, just just to go back to the volume stuff for a second, do you think that the studies that report like really high hypertrophy response with really high volume routines are just due to like temporary swelling or inflammation, or what do you think that's due to? Um, it, it depends, and you have to look at each study on an individual basis. You're absolutely right that there's a, a an edema or a water retention that occurs in muscle tissue that's trained frequently, and that's why in most studies it's good to have at least three days of zero training before the final measurements of, you know, cross-sectional area of the tissue is taken. So, you know, you should use an MRI to get a nice cross-section of the tissue. Let's say you're doing the quadriceps. It should be three days of, of zero training before you measure that final result to ensure that you don't have any residual swelling or edema in the tissue. Um, and I think a lot of us are, have actually experienced that firsthand when we, we miss a workout or we go, you know, a few days without training, we literally feel smaller and it's discouraging. And it's like, Oh, I can't wait to get back in the gym. I'm like shrinking. It's like, yeah. well, you, you are shrinking a little bit, but only you notice. Um, but it isn't all in your head you actually do shrink a little bit. Right. Um, so, you know, again, and with an untrained subject pool, um, it's easy to get them to grow from just about anything. Uh, on the flip side, when you have a very trained subject pool, I know a study recently came out where they had them train really high frequency. Uh, I think it was five times a week, and they grew. And these were highly trained lifters. And that doesn't surprise me either because of the level of resistance that that group is going to have to the training stimulus anyway. But add on top of that the strength, the ability to push themselves that this group has training that frequently can only occur in, in short bursts. It, it can't be business as usual. I train five times a week all the time. Right. Um, can, can you just uh, touch a little bit for a second more on the strategic deconditioning component? Like um, how, what is the longest bout of time for which you would train continuously and how long should you uh, strategically decondition yourself? Yeah, um, just briefly, the repeated bout effect is an interesting thing um, some of the research on it, and again, the repeated bout effect is simply the fact that the tissue does not respond to the exact same workout um, in the same way over time, right? So if you always did three sets of 10 with leg extensions with the same weight, your, your muscles don't respond to it as much each and every time you work out, in fact. Um, and this goes for both the negative response to training, right? The inflammatory response and the... Um, the creatine kinase that, that's a reflection of, you know, membrane damage in, in the bloodstream, all of that declines over time. Um, even if you continue to train, um, so you can train a muscle when it's still sore and you don't re-damage it, that next workout, if it's the same as the previous one, actually does less damage, even before the original damage has, has healed itself. It's a really interesting property. But, um, for example, in studies of the repeated bout effect, they'll use a downhill treadmill where they make the subjects walk downhill on a treadmill so that each step you're getting an eccentric contraction with your quadricep. Well, it may not seem like much, but you put them on there for a half an hour or so, and there's a lot of muscle damage to the quadricep. Creatine kinase is really high. They're super sore. Um, and then just a single bout of that, they'll then take new measurements, you know, one week later, three weeks later, you know, two months later, even up to six months later, they found that if they put them back on the treadmill um, three months after having done it once previously, they don't get the same response that they did the first time. Even though everything is exactly the same, the tissue is still protected because of the adapt adaptations that had occurred. And we call that the repeated bout effect. So the repeated bout effect lasts for actually a long time. However, there are many different components and different tissues and pathways that are undergoing this uh, adaptation as part of this repeated bout effect. Some of them negative, like I say, that are due to trauma and inflammation and remodeling of the tissue. Other ones are positive, like turning on protein synthesis and activating anabolic signaling pathways. The notion with strategic deconditioning is that, well, we know that the repeated bout effect lasts a long time. 
but we can't go three months without training. So it's not obviously going to be a complete reversal of the adaptation to the training stimulus. But within a couple weeks, you actually get some meaningful, I won't say you know big, but I will say meaningful unadaptation or, or de-adapting uh, from the training in just two weeks of not training. So that when you go back into the gym, those anabolic signaling pathways are actually stronger than they were when you quit. And measuring the tissue, it has not atrophied. So it's just a way of kind of resensitizing the tissue to the training stimulus repeatedly every, you know, eight to 10 weeks. Right. Um, that's, and that's some, initial, some initial research has panned out showing, and, you know, like I say, I was saying, you know, let's do strategic deconditioning, you know, in the late 90s and 2000s, and there really wasn't any research at that time. It had just been something that I had experienced anecdotally, and a lot of people had, and they called it muscle memory at the time. Oh, it's just muscle memory. You, you go back to training after a layoff, and you grow much faster because your muscles somehow remember something. Well, your muscles don't really remember anything. It's just that they've resensitized uh, to the stimulus and are growing as if you were a beginner all over again. So uh, since then, though, there's been some animal research and even some human research that has shown that in principle, it does, it does happen that way. There is a resensitization of the tissue amongst anabolic signaling pathways and some things like that in a very short period of time of deconditioning. So it's not completely without merit, <laughs> some people might want to claim. Awesome. Uh, that's super interesting. And uh, just out of curiosity, is there anything that you change your stances on? Like, has anything changed in your mind about c compared to the original HST uh, protocols? You know, not much has changed in that period of time. Um, the research that's being done on signaling pathways is really, you know, at the genetic level and uh, involve things that don't impact training planning, you know, that they're getting down to such fine detail. Um, one thing that has changed is probably my belief in what could be a critical factor in your ability to grow. Um, and that, you know, it used to be satellite cells. I knew, you know, you got to have satellite cells. There's a nuclear to uh, myonuclear domain that has to remain essentially the same. And that means well, how much volume of the muscle cell does a single nuclei have to take care of? And if the volume of the cell grows, that muscle cell must add another nucleus to accommodate that increased volume. You know, you might think of it as a, a pizza delivery place. You know, they, they can only deliver so far before they got to put in a new location so that they can cover people who are further away from the original location. Um, literally, that's, that's a good way to think about it. But uh, not that I'm not thinking about pizza right now. But anyway. <laughs> Um, so I know that's important and we all know that's important and we do know how you can boost satellite cell numbers now. And that's actually metabolic stress is more potent than mechanical stress in increasing the number of satellite cells. So turns out that that stint at the beginning of an HS routine, HST routine, where you have a lot of metabolic stress is actually building the number of satellite cells to help recover from trauma that's going to happen during your heavier load. So it has additional benefits than just, you know, working out with a weight that isn't as heavy as it, as it possibly can be. Um, but now after, you know, especially after my dissertation and looking at um, uh, a paper, <clears throat> specifically one I was looking at, let me see here. There's a paper uh, by Bamman called Molecular Regulation of Exercise-Induced Muscle Fiber Hypertrophy. Um, that paper does a good job of discussing ribosomal efficiency and ribosomal capacity. And those are two components that are actually really important in determining, well, what is the net effect of turning on protein synthesis in your muscle, right? So ribosomes are responsible for taking amino acids and turning them into proteins, right? And we want them to be turned into contractile proteins, primarily. Um, and depending on the efficiency of the existing ribosomes, um, if protein synthesis is turned on, that tells you how much actual protein you will get for protein synthesis being elevated for four hours, right? If you yeah. increase the efficiency, will you get more protein within those four hours? But what I've started to see that, that makes the most sense is that actually it's the 
de novo biogenesis or the creation of new ribosomes so that now you have even more ribosomes in the tissue, which increases not just the efficiency, but the capacity uh, that may be most influential on the net effect of your workouts. So, or the net effect of triggering protein synthesis in the cell, which comes from either meals or training, right? So I've come to believe probably within the last year, especially that if we could <clears throat> emphasize that variable of training that has the greatest effect on triggering ribosomal biogenesis, you'll probably have the greatest impact on the rate of growth that you are experiencing. Right. Um, and there's some indication now that it does have to do with load, right? Meaning heavier weight leads to a, is a, produces a greater stimulus for ribosomal biogenesis, which makes the conversation about, well, load doesn't matter, you know, just train to failure doesn't really make any difference unless you want to get strong. Uh, that may not be true. Um, yes, it's true that heavier weights make you stronger, but if it does pan out that heavier weights also increases the number of ribosomes, then that's absolutely the goal to do. So, uh, but uh, it's too early to say that, that load should be emphasized, you know, with long-term training or, you know, that you're doing it for a specific reason, but I'm pretty sure more data will come out within the next couple of years that will make it more clear at this point. Right. Perfect. Um, yeah, I guess just, just one thing I forgot to ask you in the meanwhile is like how over over the course of multiple training cycles, how uh, fast are you expected to increase loads on your, your yeah, like basically you maybe start out one cycle with a given load, the next one with a higher load. How does that work? Yeah, um, normally a person will actually test on all the exercises they, that they want to use their rep maxes. Now, there are formulas that you can use to say, oh, well, if I know this is my 10 rep max, or if this is my five rep max, then according to this little calculator, this should be my 10 rep max, and this should be my 15 rep max. To me, those are close enough to, to pick weights to do your first HST cycle, right? Just find one max. And if you have a calculator, it doesn't even matter which, how many reps you do it. Uh, you can then predict by plugging in, you know, different numbers in it, and it'll spit out, and it'll predict for you what your maxes are. Um, after that, you just go by feel. Um, most people exceed their maxes the first time that they do it simply from the adaptation that's occurred from when they started. But after that, it's like, hey, if they were a little light, I'm going to add some weight to it. Um, some people get over eager and they, you know, say, oh, my max is this and they get there and they, they can't really do it. And it doesn't really matter. But the, the specificity of the load isn't too critical as long as you're, you're in the ballpark. So I really just have people test them at first, you know, whatever exercises you want to use, take a day and find all your maxes for, for, for those exercises. And again, it doesn't really matter how many reps you choose to, to use as your max. If you have, just get online and use one of the rep max calculators. Right. Cool. Well, uh, Brian, I think uh, I asked you all my questions. Is there something I definitely should have asked you and I didn't ask it? Uh, no, I think, I think that there's one thing I want people to remember is that, you know, muscle tissue again, it's just a little cell with a bunch of water and proteins and enzymes floating around and trying to find the holy grail of workout routines is a futile effort. There is no fixed number of sets and reps, volume, frequency that you can do that will always be the best thing for you to do. It changes over time. Just get as close as you can, uh, you know, and then use experience to get a feel, you know, for, for what you need to do over time. Learn the principles of, of what's making the muscle grow. Increase the volume or decrease the volume accordingly. Increase the weight or decrease the weight accordingly. Same with frequency. Um, and don't get too hung up on thinking somebody's going to discover this magic number or combination of sets and reps that's perfect because the, the body just doesn't work that way, right? Um, it, it evolved in an environment where there were no sets and reps. You're climbing hills, lifting rocks and logs and throwing spears. And, you know, it had nothing to do with sets and reps. So it evolved in an environment that had nothing to do with sets and reps. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for that. And, and I think uh, your perspectives will really make a lot of people just uh, drop their jaws for one, but more importantly, make them, make them think, uh, which, which is ultimately the goal here. So, um, yeah, thank you so much. You dropped a ton of knowledge bombs here. I really appreciate you coming on. And so just please uh, 
let people know what kind of resources you would like them to check out or where they can find more about your work? Yeah. Um, like I said, I haven't been publishing a lot. So there's a Think Muscle or hypertrophy specific Facebook page that gets updated fairly infrequently. But there's also the Think Muscle message forum that, that a lot of guys get on there who've done HST for many years. And, and you know it inside and out that can really help somebody out that's trying to figure it out. So. Yeah, just thinkmuscle.com and you'll see a link to the forum. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, Brian, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you, Abel. I really appreciate the invitation. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed this episode. And once again, if you haven't checked it out already, be sure to visit the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group at facebook.com slash sustainable self-development. And if you haven't done it already, visit sustainableselfdevelopment.com to be up to date with everything that we've got going on there. All right, thank you for hanging on up until now and see you in the next episode.